Well, if you look at your handout this morning, it's a collection of verses that portray the account of the resurrection. And of course, I named it the harmony of the resurrection because it denotes how coherent the message in the story is. It's very symmetrical. It blends. And at first glance, however, when we consider the resurrection, we have four different accounts. All the gospel writers have mentioned the resurrection, but some of them add details that the others may leave out. And sometimes we find and conclude that it's a contradiction. And, you know, the skeptics are always pointing at the contradictions of the Bible. When we read it carefully, we find there is no contradiction. It may be that someone sees something and mentions one thing, like maybe I see an angel, although there are two mentioned elsewhere. It's not a contradiction. It's just that you're seeing through the eyes of Mark or Luke or John or Matthew. You see, you're seeing what they themselves saw and they speak and tell to you. And so we could call it the gospel, if you will, of the harmony of the resurrection. Because the gospel is the message of what? The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people mistakenly refer to the Bible as the gospel. I can look to that Bible in the pew there, and I may point to it, and I may say that's the gospel. But in, the, in reality, it's not. But the Bible contains the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of the Son of God concerning the salvation of sinners. That's what the gospel is. And that's why Paul in Galatians 1 reminds of the Galatians. He marveled that they were so soon removed from the gospel of the grace they were called to, which is in Christ. How were they removed? They were, they were removed from the footing of the teaching of the gospel that conveys the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were very apt to following the seducers of Judaizers who were trying to tell others, especially within the church, of their being justified by the works of the law. So that's primarily the purpose of that letter to, to, to Galatians. The Corinthians had equally a problem, didn't they? The Corinthian church. Oh, they were a very unique church, but they were praised by the Apostle Paul on many accounts, not only in the beginning, but throughout. They had their problems. And one of their problems, well, they had a variety of problems in that they tolerated things that were wrong. They probably would do much like we do today. You know, we have a big heart, and we want to error on the side of caution or mercy. And so we have a way of tolerating things. And of course, this got under the skin of the Apostle Paul on several accounts, and he deliberated to the Corinthians on a variety of lessons. But one in particular was in a theological setting, and that was the denial of the resurrection. And so when he wrote that great first Corinthian chapter 15, he asked the question, how say some of you that the resurrection is past already or that there is no resurrection. It boggled his mind because he himself was a direct witness having seen with his own eyes the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he mentioned, of course, all the other brethren that were included in actually seeing. Do you know something 
that there never was any one of those 500 brethren or more that could see the risen Jesus Christ with their own physical eyes before they died never recanted it. Never. There's nothing nowhere that proves that any one of those witnesses changed their mind even at the point of death. They devoted themselves to the truth. They preached the truth. And that's why Paul said, you're, gonna fi- you're, uh, you're finding me a witness to be an heir, to be a liar. I mean, if we do not preach Christ having been risen from the dead, he's yet in his sins. We're, excuse me, we're still in our sins. We are still there. We're, we have no hope. And, and then he adds, we're almost men miserable. Why? Because we live, eat, we live, eat, die, and that's the end of it. We perish, in other words. We cease to exist. The doctrine of annihilation would be true if Christ were still in the grave. He said we're most miserable if such was the case. And that word miserable literally means pitiable, pitiful, pitiable. Now, that's more likely the rendition of that word miserable. What pity, a state we would be in this morning. But the grave's empty, isn't it? The grave is empty. Yes, the grave is empty. And so this morning, what a precious thing it is to think about the resurrection. But before we mention the resurrection, we have to mention something about the burial, about the death burial. How significant are these elements to the gospel of the grace of God? Think about that for a minute. If it wasn't for the resurrection and the victory that we have... Christ rising from the dead. If it were not for the resurrection, we would have long forgotten about the death of Christ. We look at the death of Christ as being the most momentous event in the history of mankind. The power of it, what it means, what it represents. The penal substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God displayed on His own fellow. On His own equal, if you will. That death of Christ... However great it is, pilgrims all over the world now, today, celebrating the death of Christ, it would have ceased to exist in the mind and portal of the history of mankind. The dust would have settled in short order. The disciples went home, would have forgotten all about it, and it would have been the end. Christianity would not have existed at all. And so, without the resurrection... The death of Christ would be insignificant because there would be no victory over sin. The Lord would still be in the grave. His bones would be somewhere buried in Jerusalem. There would be no hope for man. There would be no remedy for his plight. There would be no trust in a man's heart, a hope to live everlastingly. It would have been finished. And so that is a very important aspect when we think about the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, how important is the resurrection? It was God's approval. He stamped his seal upon the work that his own son performed on our behalf. The story of the resurrection is a beautiful one. It's captivated people. One of the privileges I've had for many years serving a church is that every Easter I could bring a message of the resurrection. Sometimes I would bring it from the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament. You know, when the Lord 
was conveying and declaring the truth of the resurrection, he was using the Old Testament. And there was on one occasion after he referred to that temple over there, he looked to that temple and then he pointed to himself. He said, you know, in three days, that temple is going to be raised again after its destruction. He was referring to the temple of his body. Of course, the unbelieving Jews, are you kidding me? Forty and six years. That thing's been in construction. You're going to destroy it and in three days raise it up? I mean, they were thinking purely physical. But then there's a little note that John includes in that second chapter, if you want to read it later, where John makes mention of the fact afterwards they would believe the Scripture concerning his death and resurrection. I wonder what Scripture he was talking about. Was it Psalms 22? Was it Psalm 16? You know, was it Genesis 3.15? You know, I think it was a lot of them. The Bible doesn't say exactly what Scripture, but the Scriptures contained in the Old Testament that reflect the victory. Now, many Jews today, even scholars, they don't see that. They see a Messiah that's suffering, but they don't see the connection between a Messiah reigning. And so some scholars actually have two Messiahs. They've got one, a suffering servant, and they've got another to fulfill the scriptures that portray to him as reigning. Very interesting. But we see that together in one shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, and if you look at your sheet here for a minute as we go through or breeze through this, this wonderful story of the resurrection, which captivates us. Oh, as I was saying, uh, what's captivated me for 20-some years has captivated many for thousands of years. The idea that Christ rose from the dead. And this is still a, a staple. It's a staple. We can't lose sight of what it means. You know, the wonderful aspect of this story. Well, I have the red letters that portray the action or the verb concerning what was mentioned in each account. And I've got the event in black. Maybe made a mistake here or there, but there's basically the front and the back of your pages that convey some scriptures. And you notice that um, the burial of the Lord, notice in John, the column 19 and 38, Joseph of Arimathea, of Arimathea uh, secretly besought Pilate for the body, for the body. And of course, this was very significant in the minds of a Jew. Um, they loved the Lord Jesus you could see that they loved him. And if you could witness the day preceding how he was scourged, the night, the same night in which he, the night before, after the Passover, and he was turned over, if you will, he voluntarily turned himself over to the powers of darkness. It must have been an amazing sight. A great contradiction in, in the minds of the disciples. Not at first, though. I don't believe it was at first, because I remember when the Lord said they were seeking who Jesus was. Are you Jesus? He said, I am He. And what happened? They fell backwards. Those who came out to seek Him fell down on the ground. That was a powerful moment. And in Peter's eyes, I believe Peter could see that. In Peter's estimation, that certainly rang true to all that Jesus was and represented as a sovereign ruler. Even, even the, 
the, the waves obeyed his voice. The miracles that were displayed, the water into wine, the rising up of Lazarus from the tomb was just preceded maybe by a week or more. Surely Peter was encouraged and drew his sword and sliced the ear off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. But the Lord said, he condemned that. Put thy sword up. You see, so in that instant, he might have seen a flash of the sovereignty of God in the beginning, possibly, of an overtaking of these forces and ultimately restore Israel to its proper position and place politically and powerfully among the Romans. But that wasn't the case. Put your sword up. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. And so this contradiction in Peter's minds was exasperated. How so? It was exasperated by all that was taking place that Jesus now was in the hands of sinners, wicked hands, cruel hands, that he relinquished himself, that he had no power, that they scourged him, that they whipped him, where the flesh was borne off his body, a bloody mass whose visage was marred more than that of any man. It must have been something going on in his mind like this is defeatism. This is not what I expected. And then, of course, being nailed to the cross. When we look at all these things relative to the uh, idea and the details of the crucifixion, which my, I, I might add are not really noted in the Bible, there's more to the degree of its passion located in Psalms 22 than anywhere in the Gospels. There may be several reasons for that, but one in particular is people in that day knew all about it. But what legacy did they leave for us to know about it? I don't know altogether, but it was such a horrific sight that God chose not to go into all the details, the bloody, gory details that would probably fascinate human nature and the flesh to such carnal appetites that they would make an idol out of it. No, there was much wisdom in God's moving these men to portray the crucifixion in a simple way. We understand what it is. There's no need to go through those kind of gory details and turn your stomach inside out. But I can assure you this much, that those disciples' stomachs were turned inside out that night. They were hopeless. They ran. They fled. They wept. They mourned. And they denied. Peter denied the Lord. He denied. Who did he deny the Lord to? A woman? A servant woman? The great apostle Peter denies the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Joseph, of course, teamed up with Nicodemus. Now these men were members of the Sanhedrin, the elite 70, if you will. This body of Jewish rulership that under Roman authority allowed certain amount of authority administered and executed, if I might add, over the Jewish population. They wanted to keep peace. Pilate wanted to keep peace. He didn't want to see a tremendous upheaval, a, a riot taking place in the streets of Jerusalem. He's already on the hot seat with Caesar. He's got to keep this cool. So a, a lot's going down. The wicked hands are devising a plan to crucify the Lord on the very Passover whereby thousands and thousands of people have attended Jerusalem from all over the globe. There was a lot going on. They can't make a dust storm. They can't. They got to do it secretly, if you will. 
The people, a lot of Galileans were there because they followed the Lord. A lot of the women from Galilee. And so these, these two men uh, were very much understanding of the nature. They may not have understood exactly all what Jesus was, but they did know one thing, that he was a righteous man of God. Nicodemus stood up on his behalf, that he was no lawbreaker, and that what was going on was an illegal, illegal show trial. False witnesses, neither witness agreed on any one item, but they condemned him anyway. They did so illegally and unlawfully. The Lord Jesus' death and his judgment was an unlawful thing, and you know that Nicodemus was aware of it. He was a part of that Sanhedrin. He tried to defend the Lord on one occasion. And Joseph was a very rich man, and Joseph had his own tomb hewn out, out of the stone, where never a man had laid. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is interesting that any person who under the penalty of law would be killed and, as, and the form of, ter- of death would be hanging on a tree, that body must be taken down before nightfall. That was in the books. And that's very interesting back there in Deuteronomy 21 because the Jews never received any, um, any instruction on that particular manner of death. And yet two verses in Deuteronomy 21 convey the death Of the Lord Jesus. They stoned. They didn't hang on a tree. And there it was. Because that is the all wise God. Laying down the footprint. For the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. On a Roman tree. That in that particular period of time. Was not foreseen or understood. Or even an instrument of death. Even when David wrote in Psalms 22 about the piercing, about that aspect of the crucifixion, that was an unknown style of death. Oh no, the Romans, they're the author of the crucifixion. And when all the pilgrims came from all the world over into that city in that day to celebrate the Passover and the unleavened fest that followed, unleavened bread, feast that followed, uh, I can assure you that they saw a lot of crucifixes along the highway. The pits of Hinnom were constantly burning because the dead bodies were thrown in the heap, I believe. And I believe there was a constant reminder upon those who were visiting Jerusalem to abide in the law or else you're going to be in trouble. Crucifixions were all over the place. And the Romans perfected it. They perfected it so much that when they came to break the legs of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had noticed and marveled, at least Pilate did, that he was dead already. Because that crucifixion was designed to last a week long. And the suffering was so anguishing that it was torturous. And there's nothing they could have done. And those legs were propped up on that piece of wood, even though they were spiked And that uh, leg would give them strength so that it would open up their diaphragm and they could breathe. And so they had to take these breaths in passages, one here and one there, gasping for air, trying to survive. And so they came to break the legs because they needed to hasten 
Remember that text in Deuteronomy. Those dead bodies had to come down that day and put in the grave or else it would have been a contamination. It would have been uh, contamination against the law service. And so that dead body, which, which, uh, that corpse had to come down and had to have been buried. Joseph knew it. Nicodemus was aware of it. In addition to their love for the Savior. I see that in the preparation of the body. Nicodemus brings 100 pounds of spices in John 19.38. 100 pounds, that's an overkill, if you will. That's a super amount of very expensive and costly spices that were carefully laid and put upon the body of the Lord. And Joseph had linen. And he wrapped, the Bible says he wrapped the body. That's Matthew's account. Notice there, as we look at the harmony, the resurrection, 27th chapter, 57 and verse 58. Wrapping the body. Taking great measures to the preservation of the body. And might I add something here that our Judeo-Christian ethics and history has always been uh, for the preservation and the respect of the body. The body. I had a customer many years ago, and um, her husband was a great uh, man in World War II. She gave me a book, showed me the medals. Um, he delivered MacArthur from the Philippines on the PT boat. And anyway, um, her greatest goal and hope in life was to be buried with him in Arlington. But you know when she died, she only had one daughter. And she was of a different religion. She had her cremated, scattered her ashes somewhere in Ellicott City, and that was the end of her. There was no doctrinal belief in this person to preserve her mother's body, to care for it, even after death. And so Nicodemus and Joseph are preserving this body, and they carefully lay it in his tomb. They wound it in linen. 1940, right here in John's. And notice there was a garden with a new sepulcher, never a man laid. And of course, this is a fulfillment of that great chapter in Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks that the Lord would make his grave with the wicked and, in, and uh, with the rich, a great forecast to what was going on on that, on that day. Uh, excuse me. Uh, on that night, it was evening, of course, when this was taking place. They had to get there and take care of business very rapidly. Why? Because the Sabbath was the next day. They couldn't do no work on the Sabbath. You won't find anywhere in the account of the harmony of the resurrection anything going on on the Sabbath because they were all somewhere in their homes. Nothing's mentioned. It was the day before the Sabbath or the preparation day. There was the Sabbath and then there was the Sunday. Sunday, first day of the week, the way they also refer to it as the third day, the third day. They understood what that was, didn't they? I've asked my mother many times when I was a little kid, what is today? She said, it's Monday all day long. I don't care where it was along the clock. It was all day. That's the way the Jews understood the day. He rose again on the third day. How long? Was he in there a 24-hour period on the third day? No, he was not. He rose in the wee hours of the morning. He was in there a portion of the first day of the week. He rose again the same third day. You know what? I'm very happy to occupy a pulpit. 
It was also occupied by Elder R. H. Pittman. And I got a pamphlet in my stash, in my garage, in one of those books. Um, excuse me, one of them boxes. And uh, who gave a great articulate defense for the three-day theory, right? One, two, three, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. An old Baptist. You know, many old Baptists think he would... A little differently there. So I just want to let you know that I've got a witness to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was buried on Friday evening. Now, it, by the way, you can see there in this selection of verses in your uh, handout where it was on the day of preparation. Notice uh, Luke. Luke mentions it, also Mark mentions it in 1542, Matthew mentions it, 2757, buried on preparation day. The next day was a high day. What's that mean? It's significant in the Jewish mindset. It was you know, Passover and the Unleavened Fest would come along every year according to the, Brother Danny, what's that clock called? Not our calendar, but the atomical clock, or what is it, the clock that deals with the sun, moon, and stars. There you go. Something like that. And it would land, Nisan the 14th and 15th would land at different periods of time through the year. And on this particular time, the Passover landed on the Friday, and the next day, which is the beginning of the unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was on the Sabbath, and so they called it a high day. And so the preparation today, of course, that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, where they prepared the lamb, and they prepared it quickly. And of course, uh, further on in the book of uh, the Old Testament, they gave a longer period of time for the preparation of the lamb. And I believe as much as eight days, but anyway, you can look at that detail over there in the book, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. But it's portrayed literally in the life of Christ, as Brother Danny had mentioned already, that preceded this time. There's a whole week of events that's taking place in the life of the Lord. There when he is staying at the house of his friends, Mary of Bethany, remember, and Lazarus, remember? Of course, he had died and he brought him back to life. But every day of that week, he enters into Jerusalem. He's the lamb prepared, if you will. Prepared for what? Prepared for its ultimate death and sacrifice. Okay, so here we find ourselves at the burial and laid, notice, in a garden tomb. Isn't that a beautiful aspect of the death of the Lord? That he was laid in a tomb, never before used, and it was in a garden. A garden. A picture of life. A picture of springtime. Now, here I have on, in Matthew's account, if you notice, in the burial on Friday, on the Passover, that the Pharisees came to Pilate remembering, what did they remember? Verse 62, the third day. What did they want Pilate to do? They wanted him to set a watch at the tomb. So Jesus is buried in this tomb, and they set a real big stone over it. So much so that nobody themselves could move it. They needed help. Certainly no women from Galilee could move this great stone. 
And they remembered, who remembered? The Pharisees remembered. There was no secret to the Lord dispelling and telling others that he would die in the hands of sinners and he would rise on the third day. The Pharisees were aware of this. So they go to Pilate and they beg that they would set a watch and to seal the tomb. And of course he acquiesced and that's what took place. And so you had this great uh, watch in the form of uh, centurions, Roman soldiers. We're not talking about little guys. We're talking about big guys, young guys, strong guys that had set the seal and that stood guard 24-7 at that tomb. Nobody's going to break that seal. Not without dying first. That was no joke. But what took place? Notice in Matthew's account, unlike any other account, there's the mention of a great earthquake that takes place. An angel descended. And what happened? The, the stone is rolled away. And I believe that's a beautiful a symbolic aspect to the great sovereignty of God as to bringing to life, if you will, that dead corpse, Jesus of Nazareth, rising from the dead, awakened from the dead. A great earthquake. It's denoting the enormity of what is taking place. I don't know who else heard it, who felt it. I don't know, maybe it was felt... Uh, Deep into the heart of Jerusalem, the city where there's lots of activity going on. Notice what the keepers, notice that they were acting as dead men. The keepers did shake when this great earthquake took place and they were as dead men. You know, these great strong centurions were weak in the knee. They were as dead men. And in the book of Acts, I got a a quote there. Uh, 1041, where Peter elaborates more on that. And it's a very important note because, uh, you know, it's something for us to take note of, and that's why I put it in there. I mean, let's think about this. If we were in charge of the resurrection of the Lord, we might want to find out the local advertising agency and make sure we have all the graphics taken care of so that we can have a kind of like a billboard and lights and make sure everybody knows what's going on. You know, pass out pamphlets, make sure the local newspapers are getting the word, everybody's getting the text, whatever it is, you know, it's going viral. That's what we want to do. Make sure everybody who's come down to worship in Jerusalem at that great feast day are aware of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially them guys that stood as dead men. Let's let them know first. Let's inform them. But notice what Peter says. He said, not to all people. God raised them up the third day and showed them openly, but not to all people. You see, Arminianism really is an easy nut to crack when you have the Bible. When you have the truth of the scriptures. There's nothing universal about the love of God. It's particular. It's defined. It's definite. It's purposeful. And God delights in concealing things. He conceals the truth from some and gives gives it to others. Now, don't ask me why he does that, but God is sovereign. But it glorifies him. It glorifies him. It honors him because he's in charge. He's sovereign, right? Well, notice this. Not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us. Now, he includes himself who did eat and drink with him after he rose 
from the dead. And I just thought that was a neat little note regarding the actual resurrection, what took place. As we move on further, we notice the time of day in which the resurrection took place. So there's no ambivalence here. It took place on the first day of the week. Notice with me, uh, Luke mentions it. John mentions it. Now in Matthew, it says the end of the Sabbath. And so somebody might look at that and say, well, there he, he rose again on the Sabbath at the, en- uh, at the end of it. But what that is conveying is that's after the Sabbath. The Sabbath is now over. The Sabbath was passed. Notice Mark's account in 16.1. So we have the angels descended. We have the end of the Sabbath, the first day of the week, early in the morning. We have the Sabbath was passed. It was, it was dawn on Matthew's account. And so it's very early in the morning. It's still dark. Notice in John's account, when it was dark, it was still dark, even when Mary approached the tomb. And in Mark's account, there's a detail that's very interesting. As, they, as the women were moving, Mary Magdalene, Mary of James, Salome, which I refer to as Mary also, they came to anoint the body. Now think about this. They're not thinking about the resurrection at all. They're still in their minds thinking about the body. We need to anoint the body. Maybe they were unaware that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had anointed the body. All they knew that he was buried. All they remember was the terrible devastation upon which he experienced on the cross. And so they had in their minds a heart to go and anoint the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while they were gone, they were musing to themselves, how is it that we're going to roll the stone away? I thought that was a neat little tribute there. And so they were bringing burial spices, the Galilean women. And there was many women. It wasn't just the three Marys that I mentioned, but there were many women that followed. Uh, in other places, their names are uh, referred to. Joanne is one of them. Um, and so when they got to the tomb, the, st- the stone was rolled away. They saw it. 20 in verse 1 of John. They seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. They found it, Luke's account, rolled away. I don't know, a great earthquake. Maybe it was just, maybe that angel just pushed it out of the way. In either case, it was a miraculous event that took place. In other words, he didn't need the help. We might think that, why even roll this stone away? I mean, it's evident later on in that very same evening that Jesus will pass through doors. He's going to be glorified, and he'll exhibit in this glorified body certain traits and attributes that are profound. And yet he rolled the stone away. I believe he rolled the stone away for us, don't you think? For Mary. Because when she got to the tomb, she stooped and she looked in. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Let's pick up with the 20th chapter of John, verse 2 through 10. Mary runs to tell Peter and John why. What happened? Let's look at the account in John chapter 20. She's excited. She's met someone. Now, she hasn't met the Lord yet. I know you're thinking about that. She was, the Lord's first visible appearance would be to Mary Magdalene. But she's going to meet someone else first. So in John's account, 20th chapter, 
On the first day of the week, verse 1, Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away, she runneth, and cometh, notice, she cometh to Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And so she sees the stone rolled away. But now, okay, now I do, I do have a correction here. She runs, she tells Peter, she tells the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Okay, I'm straight on now. Not going to see the angel just yet. And so she runs and she tells Peter. And Peter gets up and goes. He therefore went forth and that other disciple, which is John, and they came to the sepulcher. And so the next verse says they ran together. So they're running. They're running fast through the streets of Jerusalem, through the gates, and into the uh, graveyard, into the garden. And then cometh Simon Peter because he's, uh, John's outrun him. Verse 5, he stoops down. John, stooping down, looks in. He sees the linen clothes lying. Yet he didn't go in. Simon Peter passes him up and goes right into the sepulcher and he sees the linen clothes. Now, there's something very unique about the linen clothes. Verse 7, the napkin that was about his head, not lying in a disorderly fashion. Like somebody just got out of bed in a hurry or maybe the body stolen and left the grave clothes on the, on the ground. There was something unique about these grave clothes. That they were wrapped about the head where the head lied in a neat and an orderly fashion. As if, as if the Lord was merely a guest in the tomb. Wrapped together in place by itself. A beautiful picture of the divine sovereignty of God. Even in the smallest details. That the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't something chaotic, but that it was conceived in the mind of God, demonstrated by the power of God, brought forth by the very wisdom of God, and even all the chaos that surrounded it was not portrayed within it, you see. That was holy ground. Then went in also the other disciple, John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he, said, he saw in the verse, and the scripture says, and believed. Now, he believed. Now, what he believed, I don't know. Because it seems in the context of not only this particular account, but other accounts, that altogether the twelve, or the eleven, did not believe. And so the way I see this, when John looks... He believes what? He believes that the body is taken. The body's not there. He doesn't see the body. The body is somewhere. Or maybe he's gone to heaven. But it never entered their minds that he's risen from the dead. Never. It's never entered their minds. And they knew not. Notice what the verse 9 says. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so their eyes were withheld from what had just taken place. And so they go back home. Peter and John go back home, and now we pick up back with Mary Magdalene, who returns to the sepulcher. Notice verse 11 of chapter 20. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. As she wept, she stood down and looked into the sepulcher. And notice verse 13. Woman, why weepest thou? And so 
the Greek is laying something down for us, and the King James translators are conveying something to us. She's not shedding a tear, is she? She's weeping profusely. Not just once, but a continual fashion of pouring out her heart. Why weepest? It's a continual work that's going on as she pours forth her tears. She loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And in her expectation, she would find that mutilated body and pour on that body the precious spices that she brought her and the other women. Now she's singled out here. She's by herself. The other women are not with her right now. And as she looked in, she stooped. Now obviously the you know, you're getting the picture of how tall the entry was. Everybody's stooping as either they look or they pass through. And at the um, head, notice this, and at the feet there was an angel, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had laid. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing. Now, she didn't know who it was at this moment. She supposed him to be the gardener. And I, I noticed that this is the only place in the gospel accounts where it is mentioned that he is supposed a gardener. And I always thought that that was such a beautiful, beautiful portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's tending to his flowers. He loves his people. And he's going to reveal himself to his people. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. He calls her. And at that point, her mind is opened and she understands it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls her by name, maybe in the Aramaic, Miriam. She recognized his voice by the calling of her name. And she said, Rabboni, which is to say master. And Jesus said unto her, and this is an odd verse, only right here. I want you to notice this. Lots has said about this particular verse, verse 17. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. That last clause should remind you of the, of the night before in the upper room where the Lord in John chapter 14 will, pour, will uh, tell his disciples of his love for them and that he must go away. He must go away. He can no longer be with them as they understood him up to that moment in the flesh, as a friend, as a companion. They're going to know him no longer after that manner. And I believe what this text is referring to, it's not necessarily that you couldn't touch him because the woman's contaminated. That's some far-fetched idea. In an account here, in the resurrection account, when the women finally meet up with him, they will fall at his feet, hold on to them, and worship him. It's not about the physical touch. But it is about the physicality of the situation. That they will no longer know Jesus after the flesh as they have up to that point. In fact, they will know him more intuitively. 
more deeply. That love will be in their hearts. He will know them. He will dwell in them. He will be with them. He will be their God, you see, on a much greater plane. He says, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father. You see the fellowship there. Not only my Father. He's bridging the gap here. He's bridging the gap. The great transaction's done. We are no longer uh, excavated apart from the presence of God. We have brought into at one with the Father through Jesus Christ the Lord. There's the one way that is presented right here, John 14, 6, before Mary Magdalene. Don't touch me right now. I'm going to go to the Father. And when I go to the Father, I will be closer to you than you shall ever have known me. Far greater than the physical aspect of it. Do you know we know the Lord Jesus Christ in a better fashion right now than the, than the disciples did when they were in their earthly tabernacle ministering with and alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. We know Him better than they ever knew Him according to the flesh. We know Him through the Spirit. We hear His still small voice. He says and He speaks to us as the song that we sung rang true in our ears. Mary Magdalene came, told the disciples that she had seen the Lord Verse 18, that he had spoken these things unto them. That very same evening, of course, he will um, go and meet his disciples there. It's portrayed in, in, in John 20, 19 through 23, with some great words. Uh, Thomas's unbelief. This is another picture of the hor- horrible condition of the disciples and their faithlessness. Did they have faith? Yes, they had faith. But it was little faith. Jesus upbraided them for their lack of faith, for their faithlessness, you know. Beautiful, beautiful there. And then Jesus, he'll say in verse 29 to Thomas, after Thomas reaches, of course, his finger into the side and into his hand, into the hands, and, and Thomas said, Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, Jesus said, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. And so that goes full circle along with what we've been saying. That our nearness to Christ is closer to us through the Spirit than it is in, our, in the physical realm in which the disciples. That's why it was important that Christ go away. So all of us. All the elect can enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ. All right. We're coming down the stretch. The last... Okay, it's closing time. So I'm going to leave off with some of the, my favorite aspects of what was going on. So I'm going to just conclude with some statements. Number one... The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was the most unexpected thing in the hearts and minds of the disciples. It was unexpected. We see that on the account to the road to Emmaus, some seven and a half miles away from the action. There are two disciples, Cleopas and one unnamed disciple who we do not know. We don't know who they were. They were disciples of another tier, another group. They weren't of the eleven, but they were disciples nevertheless. And they were befriended by an unknown visitor, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And what was it that they were upset about? 
What was it that they failed to visualize? What they did not expect. They had, the Bible says, they trusted that it would be he who would redeem Israel. And they were thinking purely physical. That in some political fashion, Israel would no longer be a slave state to the Roman government. That they would be prompted through the Messiah to enjoy the blessings of the Davidic covenant in a physical realm. To reign from Jerusalem this way, you see. They failed to perceive. It was unexpected that the Lord would rise from the dead. That he would pay the price of sin and satisfy the wrath and the demands of a holy God. It was totally unexpected. She didn't expect it. Mary Magdalene. She brought the spices. She didn't expect to see Jesus. If anything, they might have thought, well, Jesus died and he's in heaven. Just like Lazarus. They didn't expect him. Not only unexpecting the resurrection to be, but also unbelievable. It was unbelievable, unimaginable. It didn't enter into their minds. They didn't believe it. In fact, I'll use the word disbelief. They, they had a, a certain rebellion toward it. They would not believe, even though with all the evidence, the women coming back, sharing, revealing, walking into the empty tomb, they would not believe. You know what that mirrors? That mirrors our heart right now. Some of the greatest tenets of false religions today that are very close, some of them I might add, close to the doctrines of Christianity do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, they think he's still in the grave. That he never really um, died on the cross. That somehow uh, he mysteriously went away. There's a couple different versions. But you know what happened when he was on the cross? They took the sword and they pierced his side. And that was a visible representation to the natural man who was viewing this thing. That that body was dead because out came water and blood. That was proof that the Lord Jesus Christ was dead. They could not fictitiously disguise the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate knew it through the testimony of the witnesses himself. And he marveled. And so it was an unbelievable thing. It was beyond their expectation. They forgot scripture. Or they didn't read it. Many of the Lord's people today read the Bible and disbelieve it. Some of us don't believe that there's a life everlasting. Some of us fail to believe as we look into that tomb that we could be instantly with Christ immediately upon when we give up the ghost. We don't believe it. We have a hard time with that. Even though the Bible says it. There's an empty tomb to prove it. And how sweet the spices. The aroma of the tomb itself is refreshing to the hearts of God's people. Because the Lord has passed through. And he's, he's gotten us the victory. Also, another third point. That the resurrection is a demonstration of the amazing power of God. Which we oftentimes fail to believe. The amazing power of God that God will raise the body from the dead. All right, I'm going to keep on going with these concluding remarks. How it can affect us today. One, we have no fear. I have no fear of death. Why? Because Christ, my Lord, has conquered death at the cross. And he rose again, sealed my pardon. I'm now accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of the Son of God. The grace of God. 
And Paul warned that any other gospel than that which he preached of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ within the confines of the grace which is given us in Jesus, any other gospel than that, he says, is not another. It's an accursed thing that robs God of his glory. No fear. We have hope in eternal life. All right? No dominance of sin. The resurrection power is known to us not only today through no fear, but also in the power over the sin that reigns in our body. We have dominance over it. We can say no to it. God has given us the exercise of faith. And we can say no to it. Oh, it catches us occasionally, doesn't it? It grips us by our heels. You know, a man or a woman whose heels are held can fall over very easily. Just the least little bit of sin can enter in and destroy your peace. can rob you of your joy and your righteousness. Sin has no longer reigning in your mortal body through the power of the resurrection. Okay, also, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ can remove you from the sadness of the natural element of this time world. And I'm including in that your life. Your life. And I'll close with a verse, a precious verse. You know, a lot of young people don't quite understand what I'm saying. That your goals, that your hopes in this natural realm may not always be achieved. You're setting out. Your life is ahead of you. You've got it planned. You're spending the money and the resources. And you've predicted it practically. How your life will end. I'm going to tell you something. Paul, the apostle had no confidence in his flesh. But he didn't say that in the beginning of his time. He said that after the Lord dealt with him, after the Lord robbed him, if you will, of whatever natural element could give him satisfaction. He was naked. He was subjected to peril. He did not have his own home. He was without money. He starved and looked for food. He suffered for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. He persuaded men of the things of the gospel of the Son of God and he cared less about the natural realm because he was dying, you see. And at that point in his life, he had the greatest victory than he ever experienced prior to it. Prior to that Damascus Road experience, Paul, the, excuse me, Saul of Tarsus was in the driver's seat. He was condemning men and women to death. He was persecuting them to the prison. He was boss and sovereign until the day the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Saul. And he fell to the ground. Who art thou, Lord? You see, he was now a chosen vessel of God's sovereign grace, separated from his mother's womb. He was now in the hands of God Almighty to do his purpose, to preach the gospel of the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, and to suffer greatly for my name's sake. And he did so. And he said this, and he's going to mention his natural realm. He said, I got trouble. Troubles come to me. You know, sometimes we're our own source of trouble. I'm going to close now. But sometimes our trouble is due our own fault. But the trouble in which the Apostle Paul is talking about now is beyond him. It came to him. It followed him. He said, I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. 
He said we were pressed out of measure. He was stressed beyond the pale. Have you ever been there? When you see no hope, where the road has ended, you were pressed out of measure. He said above strength. There was no strength left. I was, there was no strength left. There was no hope left. Notice this. Insomuch, and here is a kicker, that they, he despaired even of life. So from a natural realm, you know, if you live your life, your hopes, your vision, your purpose in life is within the natural element, you're going to be disappointed. Yes, ma'am, you didn't, sir, you will be disappointed. Because all we have to look forward to is old age. Is old age. And if you live in that old age element, in the natural realm, you're going to be a sad, miserable person. I know because I see it. I see people in old age homes with their heads down on the plate of food on the table that's set in front of them who have no hope because all their hope is in this world and has come to an end. They have no children. Their wife is gone. And whatever Christianity they espouse to has failed them because they are faithless like those disciples. They disbelieve. And I've seen it in the hearts of God's people. I've seen it in the hearts of preachers. I've seen it in those who preach the gospel in this very pulpit. Despise, despairing of life. With no hope of glory. But here's what Paul said. I got the sentence of death in me. He said, but. Now see, now he's talking about the spiritual realm. You know the best way to live your life? Is in the spiritual realm. It's to know that something took place in your life. That you're now buried with Christ. You're baptized into his death. The sentence of death that was was played out. The sentence of death. That judicial judgment that was played out on Jesus at the cross. Is played out in your heart. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you live. But it's God the Father through Christ that lives in you. By faith. You see. That's what Paul means when he said he had the sentence of death in himself. It came in and came, he said, and I died. Sin revived, and I died. But he was brought to life to serve God in the Spirit. As many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. Notice that we should not trust ourselves. He had no confidence in the flesh. He didn't trust his portfolio to deliver him in a golden era of retirement. He did not trust in his family structure. They were gone. He trusted in God which raiseth the dead. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.